All right, excellent. Um, we're here. The app it seems to be working. It started after my minute of terror. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're really excited. This is for it, and thank you so much for I kind of for the blog entry on um, on code review. Um, I've got a lot to talk about or ask about on this topic. Um, just before we get started, Adam, I just I, I have like a baseline question for you and Kendall, maybe for you as well. Um, are we of the last breed to have done an in-person code review? Do people still do in-person code reviews at all anywhere? Um, I still do in-person code reviews, um, specifically when a code review is very large or covers a couple of things that I don't have context in. Um, another uh, time I do in-person code reviews is if there's just a lot of back and forth in the code review. Like if a online code review takes more than like two or three revisions, I'll just sit down with the person and do it at their desk. Or I used to do that when I was in an office. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so the, I guess that's the follow-up question because, so I, and I'm just realizing that I don't think I have done an in-person code review since like 2006 or earlier, I guess. Yeah, 2006. But I, I really kind of miss it. And I'm wondering, so Kendall, do you do an in-person code review even in the post-pandemic world? I mean, do you do it over video chat or? Um, I haven't done that yet um, in the post-pandemic world. But I, I liked your rubric about kind of when to go in person. Um, and I got a bunch of kind of follow-up on that. But I, I want to get to like, first, can you give us some context? Uh, what prompted you writing the blog entry? Because I think as, as we talked about it last week, this is something we don't talk about nearly enough. Yeah. Um, so my former company, um, Indeed.com, they started doing these internal panel discussions with some of the senior engineers. Um, so there's a bunch of topics on like observability, unit testing, design, and code review. And the one that I felt comfortable like volunteering to be on a panel discussion one was the code review one. And so it just forced me to like think about how I do code reviews and write it down. And it was easy enough to turn those topics into a blog post. And so that's kind of how this ended up uh, on my blog. Oh, that's great. So you got a, it was a little bit of kind of prompting then from a kind of an organizational structure that, um, because I, I thought this, the blog entry was great. I, I really, in, there, there are a lot of things in here that resonated with me. I don't know. I, I, Adam would love to, I'm sure you felt the, the same way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of great topics in there that, um, that, that definitely resonated with my experience and I've seen the opposite of, uh, of, of some of the, you know, positive advice you gave. I've seen the consequences of the, of the negative advice or the absence of some of those things too. So I thought that was great. Yeah. Kendall, you did a really good job keeping it really positive, but surely you must've been having some negative experiences in your mind on some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, especially in conversations like this, it's a lot easier to talk about some of the negative things. <laughs> yeah. But um, for something like public facing and just trying to get the essence of my thoughts down, uh, everything was for the most part uh, framed in like a positive context. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I love your first piece of advice is one that really, really, really resonates with me, namely review your code first. Um, I have always found, like, first of all, just full disclosure, I don't think I'm a very good code reviewer. I, I, I think that I should, and I think I probably like, I probably need to stop thinking of myself that way um, because I think it's something I could get a lot better at, but I just don't feel like, Adam, you had a story that you should probably 
relay that I feel was very revealing. Oh, the one, the one I mentioned beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was, you know, as, as we were, I was thinking about this topic over the last hour. Um, and I was thinking back to my co- my first code review at sun. And I think I was an intern uh, working for Brian and, and our colleague, Mike Shapiro. And I, and I wrote some, um, addition to our debugger and I gave it to Mike to review and it came back. I think like every other character had like a red line on it or whatever. And, I mean, it should be said that you're not talking about metaphorical red here. No, no. So, uh, yeah, we, we killed trees to do these code reviews. Like we, we printed them out in like a, a diff to postscript generator and sent it to the printer and it would sit there and, and, and generate like, you know, not in this case, but in some cases, like, hundreds of lines of review. And in fact, online code reviews, when they came out in the Solaris kernel group, were hugely controversial. Well, uh, and, I'm overstating. and also the red was not metaphorical. Mike took out his no. red pen. He would, That's right. He, yes. and I, I mean, I still find it, actually, do you find it a little bit triggering to even talk about the red pen? Like, I find it like he would, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because, you know, like, yeah. he, he yep. had like this body language around like, oh, you want me to review this? And he kind of like, would I swear he would like turn take out a red pen like a parent taking out like a paddle and that's right like cap the blue pen take out the go, red right pen. Cap, you know what i'm talking about right like i didn't make that up yeah, absolutely and then like the red pen cap comes off and you're like fuck here it goes like i am about right. to get it's just going to get red ink it's going to be bled on this review yeah and and that and that is what happened and i think you uh and and Brian, I think you saw the code review sort of sitting on my desk, like dripping in red ink. <laughs> and we're like, eh, like you'll you'll figure out, like you'll figure out how to do this thing. And I think I did, but you know, it took a minute. I think that may be why I'm I'm a suboptimal parent as well. I think that's like kind of my parenting. <laughs> it's like, eh, you'll figure it out. I, I, you know, I like to think of the time which was like Mike takes everyone through the wood chipper, which which was I think basically true. Um, that's how I chose to interpret it at the time, but, but who knows how, who knows how it was intended. So I, all right. So I thought the point of that story may have been that I was inattentive as a code reviewer, but this is putting me no, in a much no, more positive would, light. But I will say now that you've broken the seal on it. Okay, good. Yeah. Phew. Yeah. Why? Yeah, well, no, I'm going to have to say it. One of the things we talked about in last week's, um, call was, uh, that I think there are different people I'd go to for different kinds of review. And if I wanted an extremely thorough, deep, incisive review it's fair brian that i would not necessarily turn to you and if i wanted like a rubber stamp uh you know i, I had a number of people who could provide rubber stamps thank you for stopping short on that one i really appreciate it <laughs> there we go well and kendall you raised this point too about about picking your reviewer about finding someone because I, I thought actually it was really interesting kind of sent me to the the the, the, the bystander effect Kendall, do you want to talk about the bystander effect and what you talked about in terms of assigning someone specific? Yeah, I mean, so in like general context, the bystander effect can be described as like, you see a crime on the street and instead of calling 911 yourself, you assume the other 30 people around you will do it. And those other 30 people were thinking the exact same thing. Um, so nobody actually actually calls 911. Um, same thing with code reviews um, in that Typically, anybody on the team is allowed to do reviews and approve reviews, but if you don't assign it to a specific person, everybody assumes that somebody else is going to look at it. Uh, and I found that like making one or two individuals responsible for getting it done um, puts it on that person's quote-unquote to-do list, um, but it also gives you somebody to 
reach out directly to if you've been waiting on a review for a couple of days. Yeah, um, I, I think that's great advice. And I think the, the other, the way I've seen that go wrong, though, is that the person who's being asked to review, I think also should um, be asking themselves, am I the right person to review this? And what kind of other additional review could be warranted? Um, you know, I've seen in different groups over the years, um, instances where you ask the person, well, why did you review this? You know, you're not an expert on this topic. Like, why, you know, why, why did you like give this the thumbs up? And they said, well, they asked me to. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fine often to say, hey, I'm not the right person to do this. Like the person who's going to do the best review on this is this other person who you should assign it to. But it's sometimes hard for the reviewer to to remember that or feel like that's a, an appropriate kind of feedback. Yeah. In the spirit of being succinct, I left a lot out of assigning someone oh, for sure. specific to your review. Um, I think there are things like some people have significantly more context on the changes, so you want them to review it. Some people have... Uh, significantly more experience in a particular domain or on a specific system. So you want them to review it. Sometimes someone is like new to the team and can ask interesting questions. And so you want them to review it or you have a mentor that you're working with. So there's a ton of reasons to assign a reviewer. Um, but being intentional about who you assign or ask to review is also like pretty important because you don't want to waste people's time, right? Like if I ask somebody for a review, it's for a specific reason. Uh, I mean, and sometimes... A rubber stamp is that reason, and I'll pick people for that. But, uh, <laughs> That's a, why, boy, why, right. uh, why did you pick me? Well, because you're generally <laughs> a rubber stamp. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's it, – it, it, you also had a really good point about how um, the, you know, reviewing other people's code, reviewing our peers' code is something that, that is part of all of our jobs. I like your, your prompt of like looking for – your, as you submit something to be reviewed, using that as an opportunity to catch up on your own reviews, because I felt like I, I, I don't know, like that sits really right with me for a bunch of reasons. It, it, can you talk about that in a little more detail? Uh, sure. I mean, I think um, something that I think most software engineers learn is like to try to leave things better than you found it. It's in like a ton of books or whatever, but just like my experience building software or working on teams is that people are usually blocked by code reviews and I don't want to be a blocker for anybody. Um, and usually when I put out a code review myself, I end up being blocked on that code review, uh, getting done. And so I just use that as, I use that as an opportunity to try to unblock other people and really low hanging fruit for doing that is doing code reviews. I, I, um, I think that is Great. I think that is such a like a, a great little, I mean, life hack. I, I hate the fact that I'm even using that term, but I just love that that you are, because you're exactly right, that when you submit something for a code review, you're kind of now blocked. You're actually ready for a context switch anyway. I also feel that it like just, it, it also amps up your empathy when you're going to do, because I think that one of the things that I don't think you got into too much, but I do think it can be a problem is reviews that have the that that aren't really showing that empathy um, can be really problematic, and it's really important that that you know I think when you are conducting a review and submitting your code for a review at kind of the same uh, in, in the same kind of time frame, it puts you in the right uh, it gives you the right disposition. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, empathy is an interesting word because I feel like in asking for reviews, but also in doing reviews. Um, it's important to have empathy, especially in, like, word choice. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> uh, 
yeah. <laughs> oh man, I, I, oh, I, this one, is, yeah. So yeah, explain on that a little bit. I think, I mean, you are obviously just bullseye right on that, but well, yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. I mean, um, I think I'm similar to you, Brian, in that I don't think I'm a very good co-reviewer, but I've gotten feedback that I am. And a part of that is just, I assume that the person knows more than me. Like I, I'm not super deep in a lot of things. So I ask a lot of questions. And even if I think something is wrong, I frame it as like a question. Hey, why did you do it like this instead of this? Instead of saying, this is wrong, you should do it this way. And I know when I've gotten reviews, for the most part, people have good intentions, regardless of how they frame it. But the way you receive that can be either uh, warm or like disheartening. And so if I was getting a review from somebody and they say, hey, this is completely wrong, you should do it this way. Um, even though I know that the intentions aren't to like make me feel bad, that reads and puts me in a different mood than, hey, why did you do this? This might be bad because X, Y, Z. And it forces the person to think about it rather than just giving them directives. Man, that is that like, that is just some super dense wisdom there. So there's a bunch there that I want to take apart. One, um, asking questions. I think that is really important. I honestly feel like the, the, the value that I personally have served in code review is asking questions of the code that the code itself didn't answer and getting people to write better comments. I do feel that that is one thing that I've, I I don't know. I mean, I can count, I feel like on one hand, the number of like really serious issues I have found in code review as a code reviewer, but I feel frequently I have found, Hey, like what, where is this coming from? Or why, you know, this is not well explained. I'm just missing some context here. And the answer to that often is is a comment that can explain it, but sometimes there's something that actually like, oh yeah, now now that you asked that, there's actually there's a better way to do this, or this is kind of yeah, this is, this could be better thought out. So I think that is really really good advice. It's great. So, it's a great show of empathy too, because you've got. You, I mean, the the act of asking for a review is sort of a vulnerable moment for the person submitting their code. So then showing your own vulnerability by asking rather than. You know, asserting that something's busted, I think, is another way of uh, responding in kind. Totally. So I, I, I see review as also a tool for learning about code, right? There's nothing better than um, looking at some, you know, having to answer those questions for yourself to some extent in, in order to code you're less familiar with as the reviewer. And, and framing things as a question is just a, an, an extension to that, essentially. You, you ask the question and you get the answer, right? You learn something. I think it's, you don't have to be positive that it's wrong. You could see something you don't understand and ask the question, right? Like, you may have just uncovered something that the person missed, and, and then you've, you've already served your purpose. Like, you're the rubber duck. Yes, you know that's right. On. But, you, but, but you actually force somebody to look at that again because it wasn't clear to you. Um, or, in the alternative, you've just learned something, and, uh, you know, your understanding of the code base is, is improved. Yeah, I feel like my role in code review is really kind of as like a psychoactive ru- rubber duck, basically. I, I was basically like a talking rubber duck. Um, the, the For those who presumably you've heard rubber duck as a metaphor, but this is like just the, or even as a verb, like rubber ducking, where you're just letting an engineer say their thoughts aloud so they can themselves can work through the problem. And I feel like, Edwin, just to your, to your point, I, very often I would ask questions that would prompt the, the, the engineer. And I, I mean... I actually, Adam. Let me ask this: Whose code have you reviewed the most in your life? Do you think? 
That's a great question. I mean, for me, like I there's mean, a, there's a just a super clear answer. So maybe maybe it's let me think about that. What's your what's your answer? Oh, Bonwick, no question. Oh yeah, it makes sense. And it, 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 for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, the in this is a different era, right? This is the in person code review era. And, and you might just explain, just explain, give Jeff's short bio. Just so yeah, that. so uh, Jeff Bonwick is in Solaris Kernel Development. When I, I came out to Sun to work with Jeff, Jeff ultimately uh, led the charge along with Matt Ahrens on CFS, developed the um, CFS file system, and uh, then went on to DSSD after Sun. And uh, Jeff had a very idiosyncratic working style. So <laughs> this is especially when, so I was the youngest person in kernel development by a decade for that, especially that first year that I was out. And Jeff had basically gone full nocturnal by this point. So Jeff was, this is like 1996, late 90s. Jeff is actually, is able to work from home a bit in an era when you really couldn't work from home, but would still basically come to the office. And he would come to the office uh, between like 2 and 3 p.m. And then he would stick around the office until like dinner time, 6 or 7. He would head home and then he would be online until 4 or 5 in the morning. And I could not work from home. I did not have a I at the time you had to have be a certain, you know, rank in order to be able to get an at-home setup and it wouldn't have made sense anyway cuz I wasn't going to get a spark station at home. So I just was at work until four or five in the morning. So I would just I was becoming I was basically keeping Jeff's hours. And so as a result, when Jeff wanted to be get a code review at like one in the morning, like I'm definitely the only one that's there. Um, and Jeff and I were working very closely together on a bunch of other things. And I think he was, you know, he was looking to kind of educate me about the system. And and then I think he also knew that like he was much more senior to me, obviously, and could just kind of like muscle his way through a code review to a degree. And I found, and this is actually kind of one question I wanted to ask you is, I do feel when you're reviewing someone's code, it's helpful to get their expectations. Like, are you trying to integrate this now? <laughs> Am I? Because you, you said that, like, the code reviewers were often blocked by code review. And with Jeff, and this took me a couple of years to kind of, to be on with to be able to do this. But the key to Jeff was when you're sitting down to review his code, the very first thing you have to say is like, look, you're not integrating this tonight. No matter what you think you're going to do, you're not going to integrate this tonight. Because it's, when he was in, I mean, Adam, did you ever review his code when he was in, like locked on one of those mindsets? Oh, yeah. Go, 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 go mode. And oh, man. Yeah, just, just like would, gra- would grab the pen out of your hand and give it the check mark if you need no, to. Right, because he's on final approach, right? Uh, he's on final approach on a big one. And I like, I get it. And so it's like, you know, you're giving him a lot of feedback that's going to be like, oh, yeah, like, well, I'll consider that the future. I'll consider that the future. I'll consider that the future. This is I, this I will also consider the future. It's like, you know, how about we do that, like, before we integrate it? Um, but I, so I think, no, I've, I mean, that was definitely um, to the point that, do you remember Screaming Red Chairs, the conference room, Adam? No, I don't. Man, oh, okay, Screaming Red Chairs. We must have ripped out <laughs> Screaming Red Chairs. When in so Adam was you were an intern in the summer of two thousand, right? That's right. Yeah. So it is like go go dot com just nuttiness, and we were converting conference rooms into office space. And the I think that that that, that screaming red chairs was one of the ones that was converted into office space. So I think that was an office when you when you were at Sun. Um, but we used to do all of our code reviews in screaming red chairs, which had screaming red chairs. Um, so the, the, 
we did all the, but we did, but in this in person, it was in person, it was printed out, you had a pen. And I think that one of the things that the in person advantage had, and kind of I want to get back to this because you raised this issue too about like when you go to in person. One of the great things, because kind of you're talking about like words really matter, when you're in person, you've got a lot more to read as a, as a software engineer, as either a reviewer or someone being reviewed, you're getting a whole nother set of body language to read that you're not getting over GitHub or whatever. Is... Sorry, Kevin, go ahead. No, uh, I was just prematurely unmuting. I, I assumed that there was a question. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, I, guess <laughs> that. I mean, I think that like your rubric now for when you go to in-person is, because you're talking about like wor the, the words really matter. And mm -hmm. phrasing things as a question, um, actually, I'm just going to ask you because we just cannot resist ourselves and, and have to just get into a tooling conversation. What do you use? Uh, how do you do code reviews? I mean, what, what, what tools do you use to do code reviews today? Um, today, mostly GitHub. Yeah. Um, previous company was GitLab. And then when I was at Amazon, they had... Um, I forget the name of it, but it's like an internal tool for code reviews. Um, I also use my ID sometimes. I think there are some integrations into IntelliJ that allows you to do like GitLab or GitHub code reviews in the editor. So I do that sometimes when code reviews are pretty large. Oh. I, I know this makes me sound like a fossil, Brian, but uh, but uh, I miss those in-person code reviews. I miss those printed out code reviews. Like I like GitHub. I, I, like, I like it fine. I like some of these other tools fine. But there, there is something about being able to like really, you know, write your thoughts or explain them to a person, you know, or not be confined by commenting on one line. You know, one of the big challenges I've had with GitHub is if <sighs> a change on line 17 actually affects something on line 150, <sighs> it's, it's so hard to even see the, that code, to expand that window and, and, and make clear your intent. Um, Anyway, I, I, it's I, atrocious. I, it, it's gone. That that time is gone, and there's a lot lot not to recommend it. But I do. I, I I think GitHub's atrocious for code review. I have to tell you, I I I, <laughs> I, I really think it's just the worst. I, I and I I was really trying to be open minded about this, um, but it, it, it is it's a real 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 struggle. It, it's like. And I don't know, maybe, and because kind of another point you had is like, be mindful of the size of code that you're reviewing. And GitHub definitely enforces that because it does not like large change. You know what I mean? I'm serious. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, there's a lot of change here. I'm not going to show you any of it. But is that helpful? It's like, I like you, there's a lot of diffs here, so I'm not going to show it to you. It's like, does that feel like a code review to you, GitHub? I mean, out of curiosity. It's like, no, I'm not going to show you like, oh, there's a lot of change here. Let's not look at that one. It's like, does yeah, that make sense to you? But what color should we paint the bike shed? Right. <laughs> So, yeah. go ahead, Kendall, sorry. No, uh, code review tooling is interesting. I don't have the experience of not using something similar to GitHub, so I don't have anything to contrast it to, but I do find, especially like in my personal workflow, like even how I look at diffs is different. Like I prefer side-by-side uh, -side diffs instead of inline diffs, and most tools default to inline diffs. Amen on the side-by-side. I am totally with you on side-by-side -side diffs. And that I actually do like about GitHub is that you do get the side-by-side -side diffs. I am a big, and I still, Adam, I still print my diffs out for my own self-review. Wow. All right. Good for you. I, I find, a, and I just feel that like, I, I still feel that like the, the review, I am much better at reviewing my own code. In fact, I, 
to try to improve myself as a code reviewer, I have tried to do a couple of things. One is to um, try to review other people's code the way I review my own, which is really hard because I don't have the context. The other thing that I have tried with kind of mixed results is I will tell you a time when I am a very good reader of code, which is when I am now certain that the bug is in this code, I, that I'm debugging something. I've spent a lot of time debugging code in my life and debugging the code of others. And I get that kind of, you know, that total, I mean, you almost feel like a predator with, with, with blood in the water. But then it also, like, that disposition is not necessarily helpful. Like, I try that a couple, but it's like, I, I it's, you know, you, you, had, you had an interesting point about, like, the, you know, the, the job is not to just find, like, bugs in the code. And I want to get to the, is it Darren's rule? What, what was your, what, the Darren's law? <laughs> so tell me about Darren's law. Yeah. Does that come from uh, someone named Darren, I assume? It does. Uh, Darren was a principal engineer at Amazon. So for context, when I was at Amazon, I worked in internal security tooling. And so a lot of our things were not like critical per se, but like pretty important pieces of code for the company. Um, and so uh, basically anytime Darren looked at code, did design reviews, he always kept his laws in mind is to cover your ass. Um, availability, security, and support. And it's an easy mnemonic for me to remember. And it, I mean, I think like, all rules are meant to be broken, right? So, like, take it with a grain of salt. But, like, it gives you things to focus on. Um, like, if I'm looking at a code review and I don't know where to start, I look at, like, can this break our availability? Is is it going to be easy for me to support this when it's in pride and it eventually breaks later? Um, it, it frames the way I think the questions when I'm looking at code reviews. I think it's great framing because I also think it gets you off of the minutia. It's very tempting, I think, in code review. And maybe this has gotten better over the years with with the the rise of formatting and reformatting tools. And uh, I will talk about Rust in a bit because I do think Rust has kind of changed this yet again. But I think it is tempting to focus on the smallest possible issues. Adam, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, I don't. <laughs> I, I, do you know I, what I small issue a, I'm going to bring up right now I, that I, I've been I, waiting I maybe 20 years 20, to bring up? I wear there's a 20-year mistake that I made, but I will no? say, just back to GitHub. Hold on. I'm, I'm not changing the subject. Oh, oh yes, is you that, are. Is that, Go ahead. Is that the, the, the diffs on GitHub do, do kind of narrow the window so tightly that all you can see is de minimis changes. Yes. But now I do want to know what mistake I made 20 years it ago. Involved, it's not a mistake at all. You're right. <laughs> oh, is it my one line? Oh, jeez. Go ahead. Go ahead. It sounds like you have something you want to say. Go ahead and say it. Okay. Okay. Well, this is an example of asking the wrong reviewers. I think we can agree. <laughs> so, um, in in uh, and Brian, you might need help with some of the details. But one of the late things we did in Dtrace was we converted a bunch of existing, um, uh, basically trace points in in lots of different uh, to use to be Dtrace trace points, which meant that. Previously, they had only been enabled in debug kernels, but because Dtrace was dynamic, we allowed them to be in all kernels, in production kernels. Um, and I had this really big diff where I was touching like hundreds of files, where I was taking these things out of debug content or out, you know, out from behind, you know, if def debug, and putting them into just like the normal live production kernel, um, and. I don't know, like, uh, and, and there was a, there's a fuck up in it. And uh, neither of my reviewers caught the fuck up and I didn't either, obviously, but I don't think either of my reviewers really looked at it. Um, and then 
the the thing is you experienced this very differently than I did. So I was working from home. Like, I'd like to say uh, just, but we, this is not what I was talking about at all. This is not what I was oh, thinking. But, really? but yeah, but oh, we should, this is a great story and we should. This, but, this is a, a, another fuck up? No, no, this is not a fuck up at no. all. I don't hold this one against you at all. No, no, this is. But, okay. but, but, but this one you do hold against me? What no, are you talking Well, yeah, we'll get there in a second. <laughs> so let's keep, let's keep going. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm working from home, like just working on stuff. In the meantime, Brian and, and our colleague Mike were at the office and I guess like somebody wandered into your office, Brian, and said, "Oh, by the way, like you, you know, you guys are planning on integrating Dtrace, but you, uh, but like this one esoteric system, like it's Nick is busted or something." Uh, close. It was a machine did not boot, and the messenger. Uh, there would be lots of reasons to question this particular messenger. Someone who who. I was even surprised that they were so detail oriented as to even be test. It was, it, it was a, he's like, you know, I've been trying to detrace wad on this machine, which doesn't boot. And I'm immediately like, yeah, well, that's not, I mean, okay. That's probably, you. it's probably, like, it's almost certainly you. I mean, I'll, I will look at this, but this is almost certainly you. Um, I didn't say that. I, I just thought it, I went to go look right. at it um, because we were on final, we were within 24 hours of when we wanted to integrate at this point. And sure enough, that machine did not boot. Um, and then uh, we heard from someone else who's in QA, who I thought the world of, Claudia, who was very good. And she told me she had another machine that didn't boot. And then, which was a pretty different kind of machine. And uh, yeah, I went to some shit scary places mentally. I'm like, we have done something because we were pulling some tricks with the D-Trace for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, one of the deeper tricks that I thought we were pulling off successfully can't actually be done. And I'm about to find out why. It's one of these old machine architectures. And that is actually funny that you mentioned. I know I wasn't thinking about this at all. But then we ended up actually talking about CodeView. Mike and I printed out all, all of the diffs of Dtrace. And we did a self-review of all of Dtrace. And we, it was a one-liner that you had. No, I, never, you know, I never blamed you for that because like you were doing – that was like – a thankless work you were doing to go convert vtrace to dtrace and you made it but the the line that you actually you you deleted an additional line in part of ripping all the stuff out you ripped out one additional line and that additional line was the first interrupt that would fire on this old scuzzy controller that only existed on these ancient machines and the thing that made me like that the reason i held on to this is like you guys didn't even tell me like i was just like Fucking around at home, like working on something else. Dude, because I was time, so fucking stressed out. You guys are uh, you're in like the boiler room. Uh, like. Absolute boiler room. <laughs> it, it actually so it was funny. So absolute boiler room. Everybody knows that Dtrace is supposed to integrate in less than twenty four hours, and something is very very wrong on the Dtrace farm because uh, I am and I'm like just exuding like stay the fuck back, and I'm all I'm doing because these machines are like hard hanging. So I'm just walking back and forth to the lab. And then going into my office, closing the office door, coming out, going to the lab. And into this, <laughs> uh, our colleague Eric Schrock was, I think that was his first day. It was like, that makes yeah, sense. like his first day on the job. Yeah. His first day on the job. He's like, I'm going to go say hi to Brian. Like, I just got here. Um, and I think even people were like, that's an extremely bad idea. Like, don't And I remember he opened, did not knock, opened my door and just like popped his head in. Um, I remain grateful to this day that Eric did not quit on the spot based on what I, I definitely uh, <laughs> told him in no uncertain terms that this timing was extremely poor and that, no, I was so relieved when we found that 
Uh, and actually, but there's an interesting other lesson there that sometimes when we look at code review, uh, that was not a code review suggestion, but God, haven't we all had the code review suggestion broke my code, where I took someone's code review suggestion of like, boy, you go clean up this other thing over here, and there's a cost associated with that, right, where we accidentally broke something else. I mean, it's like it does, the, the, these things have costs when we have these suggestions and we implement them, and we're often very far away from that kind of economic conversation when we're in a code review. Like, okay, like I could go do this, but is it worth another week? Um, you know, I don't know. But 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 it is worth, I mean, some of those mind-numbing code reviews where it was, you know, d- small changes spread over hundreds of files. Like, those are the ones that, like, you, there, there can be sleepers in there. There's sleepers. And, and... So, no, I was thinking of that at all. I was thinking of Void. Void. Oh, God. Oh, 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 oh. You're, you're saying my, my favorite useless code review comment. Yes. That's fair. So, uh, my favorite, so... Uh, I have become a better code reviewer. And um, one of the ways in which I was not a good code reviewer is because I was young. And one of the products of youth was, for me, one of the symptoms was being uh, a know-it-all. And so uh, the the thing that I knew that most people didn't was that in C, if you um, wrote a function that took no parameters, it needed to be like foo, open paren, void, close paren, because otherwise... The compiler, uh, compiler could interpret it as K and RC, and you could pass it any number of arguments you wanted. And this was like not really actually a bug, but sort of a bug if it were in a header file. But you're right, Brian, that like if I saw that, I would I could not resist back then when I was young and a bad code reviewer telling people. I mean, it, 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 like mission accomplished. I stopped making that particular mistake ostensible mistake ostensible mistake and it's like it's a little more i mean it is kind of unconscionable that c has that and actually so this break actually is a good segue to something that i've been thinking about a lot recently which is rust kind of changes the game right like that kind of a thing is just like not possible before we go there i would just say the thing that it makes me remind remind me of and and it's at the intersection of of some of the things in, in kendall's post is is sometimes it's important what you don't say. And I, I think uh, it's like just because something could be different yes, and it, it doesn't mean you need to say it. And even if it could be a little bit better, doesn't mean you need to say it, right? If, if, a, if, you're, if there's some little embedded N-square algorithm in a, that could be log N, or N log N and it's in a code path, where performance literally doesn't matter and N is only ever going to be six. six. Right. Exactly. You, you, can, you can, you can just keep that to yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. like, but we've all, but we've also, I mean, I think all made that comment, right? I don't need to tell people anymore that there's void, uh, that they write needs write void, but, um, but we've all made that comment. We've all had that comment received, but, but to run. It's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if I call this out in a blog post or not, but things like that, um, I think the the tiebreaker or something like that is it's ultimately the implementer's choice on whether to do it or not. Yes. Like everything yeah. in a code review is a suggestion unless it's like breaking or incorrect. But um, class structure, um, verbiage, boy in the function signature, like ultimately is up to the implementer whether or not they want to do that unless you have like some very strong reason to block a change on it. That's a really good point. And I, everything is a suggestion is actually, those are, those are good words to live by um, because no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, and I think the, the key, and I love your, your, your phraseology there too, kind of about implementer's choice, because I think 
I, I think I think I'll disagree with that though. I, I think it, it's about who has to maintain the code. Um and and it's not just about who's implementing the code that matters. So, you know, I, I agree that small trivial things you sometimes have to let be, but at the same time if it if it has an impact on on uh maintainability and that can be things like naming you know it, it can matter for, for how easy it is to follow the code by you know for somebody else to to follow what's going on i, I think it, 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 it matters. does matter so I, yeah go ahead Kendall. go ahead I, was, I don't necessarily disagree with that but ultimately like certain decisions are like team-wide decisions and certain decisions are implementation details like if you have a naming pattern and the implementer decides to reverse it, that's like a breaking change in my mind, right? Like that changes assumptions about how the code looks. And so that's something I would say in my review, this is a blocker. This is how we name things. Um, versus saying like, um, I don't know, calling this a a utility class versus uh, whatever class. like. That's a minor implementation detail that doesn't necessarily go against any standard. It's just kind of a style choice. That's right. And I think that, you know, the way this was phrased by actually one of our, our colleagues who since passed away, Joe Kowalski, he used to say that, is there a problem with this code or is it just not implemented the way you would implement it? And I do think that there is something like you do need to leave. It's very important, at least to me personally, it is very important that I retain my craft. It, it, it helps me retain my agency, my voice. It's the way I express myself. And there is, a, I mean, this kind of funny confluence of art and machine in software. And I don't want to be completely deprived of that. And I, you know, I, if something now, I mean, obviously, like it's a spectrum, and and Edwin, to your point, like nomenclature definitely matters, and you know, kind of thing you said that too. It's like, hey, if the nomenclature is like flipped, or if it's going to be confusing, like that is an issue. That's definitely an issue. Then that should be that should be flagged. But you also want to afford people the you, you don't want to deprive the implementer of. You also don't want to, and it just kind of the other reason I loved your your everything is a suggestion. I think one thing that we have to be mindful of in software is creating cultures where we effectively punish people for work. And that's actually, Adam, for whatever reason, like for just, you know, like the reason I never for a second on that V-Trace issue, I never personalized it because you'd volunteer to do this shitty job. You know what I mean? And it's like you've got to like – we can't have cultures that punish people for actually writing software. And we have to keep that in mind when we're doing code review. Yeah, totally agree. I can, before we move on to talking about auto formatters, which I think is the next topic that Brian is trying to move on to, um, I can I can talk a little bit to, to some of the other tooling stuff that you talked about. Uh, just a little background. I do have, uh, I work for Atlassian and I do have some amount of code running in Bitbucket Cloud, Bitbucket Data Center and Crucible. So I do, I have worked on some of the tooling that you're talking about. Uh, or at least a competitor to some of the tooling that you're talking about. Um, so I have a little bit of insight on, on some of these things. Um, I will say that some portion of this is uh, of the ability to handle large changes and the amount of context that is given around a pull request, um, around like a change, the numbers of lines and stuff. Some of that is a little bit down to uh, how the people who build the tool use the tool. Yes, um, yeah. So you'll notice that 
Crucible uh, and uh, Bitbucket Data Center have a, a per file view on a pull request. So you can see a single file at a time and there is a file explorer on the left to be able to change uh, files, like there's a file pane. Um, and that's in part because uh, both Crucible and, and uh, Bitbucket Data Center are written in Java. So that means that you end up writing, uh, for any change, you end up usually changing a larger number of files um, to be able to achieve the same thing. And therefore, you end up with these slightly larger pull requests, and they need a interface that can can handle that nicely and be able to uh, comment on those. In contrast, Bitbucket Cloud has the same sort of all changes on one one page view uh, that has become customary in a number of these tools, and that's in part because Bitbucket Cloud is written in Python and a lot uh, on like Django, and a lot of the changes, the pull requests that they build, are, are significantly smaller, um, and as a result, they don't have the need for extremely large uh, change sets. There's also a, a bit of this like cloud versus uh, behind the firewall thing in that computing that diff uh, is on GitHub and or Bitbucket to be able to compute. So there is some amount of like computational uh, uh, kind of constraints uh, at play there uh, when dealing with a larger a larger diff. Um, so, uh, you know, there is there is that, that at play. Uh, another thing to talk about a little bit briefly, while I still while I have the mic, um, you were talking a bit about um, uh, in-person code reviews and the fact that you, uh, when you're communicating purely over text, um, you don't have that same level of fidelity of body language and and tone and anything of that nature, and it's really hard to to convey the, those over text. Um, one thing that I have found that uh, the extremely effective remote employees that I work with do is seamlessly change between a text-based medium to a higher fidelity medium, whether that's audio or, or some kind of video, to be able to uh, hash out problems. So what, what does that mean? Well, you'll be talking to someone on uh, pull request, and they'll reach out on Slack and just be like, hey, look, it seems like we're going around in circles here. Let's just jump on a Zoom drop the Zoom link, they're on the Zoom for like five minutes, if that, and then they drop off. And that like quick shift up into a higher fidelity medium is so effective. The other piece there is there's new new kind of async video tools, which we're starting to play around with a bit more, such as Loom, where like uh, one, one of my colleagues, Fran, has started uh, following this practice of attaching a Loom to any... Uh, kind of significantly, uh, uh, sufficiently like complex PR, right? And they will have a short loom of maybe five minutes where he just talks through the change, what he's trying to achieve, how he got to the solution that he got, whatever. And that solves so many of the problems huh. and so much of the back and forth. So that is something I, that this is the, the, the engineer is presenting, gives a, a, a little intro effectively, video intro. A hundred percent. A video huh. intro. He usually has the pull request open, um, uh, and he'll have his like little video in the corner, and he'll just talk through like this is the change that I'm trying to do. This is the things that I was thinking about while I put this together. These are the main the, the main like I don't know uh, meat of this pull request that I really think you need to have the most input in. These are the things that, uh, you know, you can uh, kind of gloss over or whatever. So whatever kind of uh, intro you want there, but it does 
make a big difference compared to the the amount of information that you can usually glean from a pull request description and from from like commit messages. I, I like it a lot. It seems to also connect up with people's humanity, so it's not just like some random at username, uh, even like some colleague of yours, but it reminds you, oh yeah, there's a human being who worked hard on this and uh, I, I should you know, consider that and, and when I'm providing feedback. Totally, yeah, it definitely humanizes that. Uh, and it, you, it's, it's hard to get that sometimes when you're slogging through a you know, 15 pull request inbox or something. But uh, that, that is a very helpful reminder that, yeah, there is a, a person on the other end of this pull request who has put some amount of effort and thought into this um, and, uh, you know, to consider <laughs> consider their feelings uh, as you are working your way through the pull request and, and uh, leaving whatever commentary uh, you, you fit. Yeah, I mean, a lot of good points in there. Um, I love what you said about these code review tools are reflecting the the way that the tool authors themselves work. I mean, this is something I've always believed for a long time. I think it's one of the, the ways that debuggers have struggled is because debuggers are often written by um, adjacent to compiler groups. And so the code that they're debugging is often a compiler. And debugging a compiler looks really, really different than debugging a system, um, which is part of the reason. So I think it's really interesting that you're saying about these code review tools. Uh, are they, They're going to be good or bad at various things, or they're going to have strengths and weaknesses that may very well reflect the, the way that software itself was, was developed. Uh, I have to say, and I'll, I'll just grab another kind of third rail here. Um, and I know that Ryan's on here. We'd like Ryan to get your take on this, but I miss Garrett. I actually like I, I like Garrett, I, and I know I feel like I have to say I actually like Garrett because I know Garrett gets really maligned. But I actually enjoy Garrett as a good review tool. I think it's actually pretty good. But you know, we uh, I in what was a move that I think I would later come to regret. Um, we were going to be growing the team a lot. This is years ago at Joyant, and. I kind of instituted Garrett. I mandated Garrett. And um, there were some people that really liked that and some people that really, really, really did not like that. Um, and I, I definitely learned that it's it's stepping on, to standardize on code review tools even. Um, and I'd be curious to what degree people, because even, I think, Adam, even we at Oxide have, I, I mean, I think most of us are using GitHub for code review most of the time, but not by fiat. No, but it's also sort of like, and you know you do what everyone else is doing you know like it, it, it would be i think if someone were to propose that like their subgroup was going to use some particular thing it, i guess it would be fine also because we have all these isolated repos but it kind of wouldn't be fine to say half of the prs for a particular repo went through one path and half went through another to be kind of tough to manage yeah, I, I kind of like the model of, of letting the individual repos choose depending on who's primarily maintaining them because I certainly prefer Garrett. Um, I was using GitHub before that. I've got plenty of years doing GitHub code reviews. And after getting used to Garrett, I find it extremely hard to review things on GitHub. So for me, if you want me to give a good review, it helps enormously for me to have a tool that I can actually use well. So Have you ever used Garrett, for, Adam? No, we used at, at Delphix. We used uh, Review Board, hmm. which was like fine, like better than fine, I guess. I don't know. It was pretty good. I liked it better than GitHub. Um, but you know, then a bunch of the folks I worked with subsequently were most familiar with GitHub, and um, 
you know, it, it, like I don't love it, but I don't feel like it is debilitating in terms of my ability to do reviews. Um, so I, don't know. I, I feel that with Garrett versus GitHub, there's a bit of a false dichotomy in that I, Garrett historically, I think this has actually changed, got in its own way by having a user interface that looked a little clunky and could be a little bit clunky at times. It, it was, it was kind of like, you know, someone has got like, who you know, bad breath or body odor or whatever. It's like, no, this is an, an amazing person. Um, and it, it, I, I kind of feel that way with Garrett, that the Garrett's kind of like first experience could be not so great. But boy, if you were on a big diff uh, that was complicated, and I don't know how you feel, but man, the thing I really miss is like, all right, I'm on a big delta here. And you, you know, Ryan's given me a ton of good feedback. And I've now like reworked a bunch of this stuff with his feedback in mind. For Ryan to go back and re-review my work on GitHub is like brutal. I mean, I, I keep waiting. Like, there must be some like hidden mode that makes this easier than what it feels like now. But right now, reviewing deltas on deltas is just like excruciating. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's devastating for me. I can't. I just maybe I'm an idiot and I can't figure it out. But I feel like Garrett makes that way easier. And that's, a, I think, a really important aspect, honestly. Um, and I, you know, I, I think everyone has to kind of apologize for the Garrett affinity, but um, I do actually like it as, as a tool. And of course, it's all open source and so on. Um, but I, so I was actually, you know, I was just for the record, I was not going to go to the, the formatters, though. We can talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah. And, and just to add to the record, um, Brian, not a fan of the formatters. I don't I definitely what, whatever you're going to say about Rust, it was not Rust format. And, and, and I think maybe we, that's a, that's a yet another third rail that we, we might not want to touch. Could I just speak to the um, question, the thing before about making a presentation about your code review, um, actually putting a presentation out there in front of, in front of people who are looking at it. Um, I've got a little uh, analogy there with a patch that, I did when I was with HPE as a systems integrator, sort of systems engineer type person, not a developer, but we were doing 840 uh, SCSI targets on a, as block storage for a uh, ZFS um, oh, nice. cluster appliance. And that was not the actual design point that the, the environments, because the, the environment services code was written oh for God, 840 imagine. targets. Yeah. And so when you were talking before about, oh, this could be order n squared. Well, this was order n squared kind of, it was order n by m. It was like enclosures times targ targets in the enclosure, well, times targets total, because they were redundantly scanning all the enclosures for all the targets as they presented each target. And they didn't have a, like a batching mechanism for actually um, not building the enclosure services stuff. So the problem was that the thing would actually hold a SCSI subsystem lock on the entire SCSI subsystem for 40 minutes after the thing booted. And if you pulled a drive or pushed a drive during that time, then nothing would happen. And then after two minutes, you get task hung messages. And I'm just going to say here, because I don't work for HPE anymore, that we got these guys who had put this thing together in Houston and um, never tested it at the scale that we were deploying it oh, um, in Australia. And, and they're going, oh, yeah, we see those task hung messages occasionally. And it's like... Did you not actually wonder what they were from? Well, anyway, the customer had a really good kernel hacker um, who was doing lots of luster work for them. And he, I managed to kind of get him interested in the problem because it wasn't my specialty. But he produced a seven-line patch in total, which um, for the ordering of um, disks and uh, enclosures that the HP uh, 
drivers presented to Linux, it fixed the problem. And we went down to 17 seconds uh, initializing the SCSI environment services. So this meant a big deal for us. And I was trying to get this actually noticed by these folks in Houston, but they didn't really care. So I got the guy, I basically made it really easy for him to tell that this wasn't, it wasn't fixed in mainline. He wrote the patch, submitted it to Linux SCSI, and it just went into the yawning void. And um, because he just wrote it as this fixes this problem, but he didn't put any detail. And the thing was, it's almost like a feature request. It's not really like a bug request, bug fix, because no one, everyone's going, do I have 840 targets? Do I care? And so he submitted it again. And um, then finally, I said, I, I, I've got, I really want to see this get in um, so I can kind of like hand, take my hands away from it. Um, and uh, I wrote a code review effectively for the patch, threw it at the mailing list. So I wrote like 80 <laughs> lines of text and a whole bunch of included stuff about why this helps in any situation. It, you know, like it can't hurt and it can only help now, depending did, on the ordering uh, these things. This is a great story. Did, did you write it as if you had, I have never seen this patch before in my life, but I, I would like to say this is, this, no, no, no. I said, this is a gentleman this is the customer. Yeah, no, no. I, I, no one's going to come along and say, oh, I have 840 targets as well. And I decided that this was a really great idea. Um, no, I, I said, I'm the guy who's actually been integrating this thing. And here's exactly what it does. And I just yeah. wanted to put a tested by line there. And so the thing is, it's, it's more, not, not so much rubber duck debugging, but as much as yawning void code review, because you throw this thing on a Linux SCSI and the first, you know, the patch just disappeared the first time, got reposted, didn't, no, no one took any interest in it. Then I put this thing out there and then we just got a message saying, oh yeah, it's, it's you know, moved through and uh, it'll go into a mainline at X. So that was kind of like, whew. That, job done. yeah, but, that's a, there's a lot there. That's a, what a great story, although, albeit very traumatic. Um, but you're just kind of getting to also, well, first of all, like when you do have that order of n squared or order of n cubed algorithm, like, is it six or could it be more than six? Um, could it be, it, it could it be 800 plus? But I also love your, because I feel this happens in open source a lot where you get an issue that's open and maintainers don't necessarily realize, like, is this important or is this not important? And what you were saying, Jason, is like, no, like, this is, like, this is extremely important. Like, I, this, this was, here is why this is important. And the maintainer was, in fact, James Bottomley was the guy who wrote the environment huh. services code, yeah. and no one had really touched it since then. So you had a big onus to try and, like, actually demonstrate to him that, that what he did, you know, sure, it was fine, except, you know, when we got this crazy course case, you know, it, it really could be a lot better. And the thing is that once I was writing the review, I was thinking I could actually get into this and actually try and do a general purpose, um, you know, rather than a very small change, a, a general purpose improvement to any ordering of targets and in, in uh, enclosures. But um, that wasn't my brief at all. I was just trying to make it so that it worked with our configuration that we were selling into the market the, do, adam this just definitely reminds me of do you remember this uh order of n cubed issue that i found in uh in our colleagues code do you remember the string about all the uh, was this was this to i don't know was this to do with the zfs uh this was to do with the scuzzy target management facility and this is a colleague of ours god bless him love this guy uh Anytime we we would get together and there'd be any alcohol consumed, 
there was a bit of a sobriety test that he would fail when he would offer to fight you in a way that he was like not actually going to fight you. I don't think. <laughs> and so do you remember this at all, Adam? I was like, no. all right, Christmas party is coming up. I, at some point, Bill's going to ask to fight me because that's what we do. And it's fine. It's like, we're not gonna actually going to fight. It's going to be, it's, it's like, it's a friendly, it's a friendly, like, do you, he actually, to be clear, he says, do you want to fight? And what I'm going to say is like, yes, because of this order of N cubed issue, like I want to throw down over this issue. Do you remember this? This is not right. No. Okay. Yeah. So this is exactly what happened. I was like, I was basically lying in wait, not much of a drinker, lying in wait at the holiday party. And sure enough, you know, we get a couple of beers in Bill's like, do you want to fight? I'm like, I've been waiting for this for a week and a half. Yes. I found this order of N cubed issue, but it was all good fun. No one was actually harmed. And of course now my kids listen to this kind of stuff. So I have to be like, no, this is not the way I want my kids to conduct themselves. So <laughs> I shouldn't be telling this story, uh, but definitely got to be. I, and Jason, I think does highlight that when you think about like SCSI targets, like how many SCSI targets can there possibly be? Like when that code was written six and, the, the, but as time was going on, you know, more and more and more. And now you get to the point where it's actually like absolutely debilitating and people are disconnected from the consequences of, uh, which I think is a, an interesting way of connecting people. And I like the video. So, Brian, I, we know we're not we're not you're not excited about Rust format, but what, what? Tell me about where where were you going with Rust? So, I think that Rust, the Rust compiler, catches so many issues. It is so much easier to write correct code with Rust. I mean, you know much more when you have that code that compiles. And yes. certainly things that I would look for as a code reviewer. I mean, so, I mean, classic is certainly in C. I mean, if I'm reviewing your C, I'm looking at all the error paths to make sure that everything is freed, that locks are dropped, and so on in those error paths. And when you find bugs, you often find it in those error paths. Not, Rust doesn't make that impossible by any means, but it makes it harder. <laughs> you know, it, it just, there are in so many ways, right? Uh, in terms of algebraic types, in terms of the the question mark operator, I, I just think it, so it forces you to kind of like, what's, okay, wait a minute, Rust compiler, you kind of did my job. What's my job now? And I'm still like trying to figure that out. Ryan, I don't know, what do you think? Rust also, what I like about it is it gives you seams, right? Like you can, you can separate the different areas of the code better. Whereas when I'm reviewing C, like it's literally like, especially if it's an area that I don't, know that well it's like well i have to invent the universe to even to even begin to understand this versus rust you can have abstractions that build seams around or build firewalls around the different parts so i find it's easier to kind of review things both as a newcomer to the code and kind of like in isolation from other parts of the code i'll tell you a place where i find rust harder to 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 review yeah it's good yeah and, and, and maybe it's not maybe this isn't a fair comparison but i love rust analyzer like i use it a ton i find it just unbelievably helpful in terms of like, Brian, do you use Rust Analyzer? That, that felt very pointed. Are we going to talk about syntax highlighting next? I feel like I'm, no, am I no, a trial no, here? Not, no, no, no. Do I need no, to talk no, to my no, lawyer? No, no. I mean, you know, there's not, look, we're just having a friendly conversation. Am I being detained? Am I free to go? If I'm free no, to, if no, I'm free no, to... no, you're free. You're free to go whenever you want. That's fine. But I just thought, you know, if, if you have nothing to hide, I thought I just, just, just make it easy on me and just let me know. That's like, right. have you ever used That's Rust right. Analyzer? Sorry. Uh, I, ha I, ha I haven't, but it's not because I'm against okay. it. No, no, no. I, 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 of course, nothing like that. No, I just mean, I, so I, I maybe use it too much, but it, you know, if, if I'm looking at the screen, 
it's like every one of these types that the compiler has inferred is now made explicit. And I, you know, one of the, one of the neat things about Rust is like, you don't have to be overly verbose about the types because the compiler will figure out so much about it. But I do find that I miss it a ton when I'm going to code review because, you know, it's, it's, I, I mean, maybe it's a crutch in some respect, but it's, um, I don't know. It's, it, it, I find it when I'm just looking at sort of dead code, it's tough. It's much harder to understand the typing of these things because Rust doesn't force you to make it explicit like some other languages do. Well, that actually, Kendall, that allows us to circle back to something you kind of said that we didn't really talk about that I thought was really interesting about doing a code review in the IDE itself. Um, th that seemed really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, at least for me, um, especially when I'm reviewing stuff that I'm not super familiar with, it's very useful to see it in context. And code review tools don't usually give you that. So, like things like go to definition or like the function signature might have changed in a specific file, and that's in the diff. But then where that is used in a code isn't really exposed anywhere in the diff at all. So, like a lot of times, if I'm just trying to understand what a code review is doing, I'll just check out that branch locally and step through the code in the IDE. It's a way to give me context. And also it allows me to use tools that I can't necessarily use in a code review tool. Like maybe I want to run it myself or run like a linter across it for whatever reason. Um, so a lot of things you can do by like exiting the tool that you can't do in the tool when you're doing a code review. Yeah, that's interesting. I... Sorry, Joshua, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, I completely agree. And I think this bespeaks to like Brian's point that like the way we review gets reflected in the people and the tools that we use. And this is one of the things that I've actually gotten a huge amount from doing in-person reviews. And it, like this reflects sort of when someone uses Rust Analyzer as compared to when they don't, right? Like that affects the way that you read code and that you work with it viscerally. And one of the things that I've gotten out of specifically in-person reviews that I don't quite know how to get out of even a video review is when I, like we're talking about the code and working through it, people talking about how they actually work with the code and it, like when they see me like editing parts of the code, like just watching how I actually write the software and getting tips about that. I found that kind of hidden knowledge incredibly useful. Like there was at one point where I was working and my professor like sort of came up to me and was like, hey, like I know you're writing, you know, you're typing this way, but you can move your hands in this particular way as though you're playing the piano. And maybe this wasn't necessarily particular to the code review, but just seeing the different ways that you can use the computer and write software more efficiently. Um, okay, wait a minute. We we, we 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 can't just leave that one alone. Was that professor right? I mean, that's a gutsy professor to tell you how to type. Yeah, no, he. So part of this was that we had a really good relationship beforehand, and like it was just kind of you know, if he, we would get together at a whiteboard and we could finish each other's sentences. Um, and so for him, it was like totally cool because like he comes from a family of musicians. And so to him, literally typing code was like playing the piano and he would like show me. Um, I would not recommend this in general. Like this was because we had a very particular kind of relationship where that worked out well. Right, similar exactly. Yes, I think this could get, it, like in general, I don't think you should tell people how to type. I mean, I think that that is, that's, just, yeah. that, that's a level of, but I think you, you got a good point though, in terms of like seeing 
how and, and this is something that we have lost in the pandemic, right? We're not in the same office. So we don't get a chance to, so, and I thought it was really interesting when we, we were doing Bring Up in Minnesota a couple weeks ago, and I was, you know, physically with one of my colleagues, so, you know, I work very, very closely with one another, but not in the same room. And just like watching elements of his working style, I, I was able to, I, I understood like, oh, I got it. I can see why certain things are important to you or certain things are more important to me than they are important to you. Yeah, I agree. And, and like, I don't, I don't know how you capture that over Zoom. Like, I do think there's something that gets lost. Um, we got to, like, Twitch stream our... Don't, don't we, like... Can't we Twitch now? Or isn't that what the kids do these days? What they, you know? I've, that's right. Um, that's right, Brian. They Twitch. <laughs> Thank you. Source Graphs does something interesting. I think it's, like, weekly or bi-weekly, but they grab a quote-unquote popular developer and then just kind of have them walk through their tooling and uh, some of the things they use to write code. Um, it's pretty interesting. Um, I think it loses some of the things like keyboard shortcuts. It's not necessarily something you capture in that, but like it does go over like people's working style and how they write code, which is pretty interesting. We, we did that at Basho back in like 2014. And I thought it was fascinating because I think about five different people kind of presented their workspaces and how they do you know, how they, their typical workflow and they were all so vastly different and you learned about so many different tools. Um, I think that was really cool. And then uh, I think Robert, you're trying to get in here. I think, I think I saw your hand going up there earlier. Is that uh, ZK? Is, they, is what's showing up here? Or Nick, sorry. Oh, get, sorry. Yeah, no yeah, sorry. I, I had a question. I think Kendall actually um, answered it. I do have a, another question though. Um, so you mentioned something about like empathy being important and code reviews and you wanting the best to have the engineers and wanting to provide, uh, you know, positive feedback. How do you scale, I guess this, this term used a lot, um, but how do you like deploy empathy at scale? Um, cause I find like, you know, if I'm, if I have five or, you know, maybe six or some small number of reviews and, you know, one or two days I can go in the, in depth, I can do what I hope is, you know, a meaningfully good job and provide some feedback of, you know, here's how your pipeline's wrong. Here's how your you know, code could be improved a little bit better. Um, have you considered this? Yada, yada, yada. Um, but as that, you know, my team's gotten bigger. And so I find it hard to actually like go in depth and actually, you know, it's, uh, it's gone from like very qualitative, like this is great, but I've considered this to like do this, like very succinct, right. like this is right, right or wrong. Right. Yeah. We just don't have time for empathy. Sorry, we had time for empathy a while ago, but now we just got yeah. Exactly. I, I think it's a problem, and I think it's like I think you, as you scale, I do think. I mean, kind of love your take on it because I think you've been obviously been in some cultures that really value code review. I think that you have to figure out a way to get that in the culture, so you're not the only one that is that is doing this. You've got to get other people, and again, it kind of just goes back to that point you had earlier about you know using everybody being expected to review uh, other people's code. Yeah, I think I've been lucky in my professional experience in that code review was an expectation at every job I've been at. It's never been something that I had to convince people was the right thing to do. It was already ingrained that we do code reviews. You should have an approval before you push this aside. Or if you don't have an approval, you should have like a really good reason why you don't. What advice would you give to someone who is with an organization that does not do that? 
I mean, I, I'm sure it's more like a value thing. Like either they see it or they don't. But what would be some strong arguments to try and convince your team to start doing code reviews? Uh, I could probably address that. Um, I was part of the, well, I, in 2013, early 2013, I managed to convince the Jira team to switch from a uh, occasional code review practice to a code review on every change practice. Okay, wow. Um, That's a big change. Which, which, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, at the time we were not a public company and we did not have, you know, SOX compliance and various other compliance things as as forcing functions, which could be a forcing function for you, Nick. Um, sometimes compliance is a is an apt forcing function to to get people onto code review. Um, the way that I went about uh, making that change was partially around pointing out. Um, Instances where it, where in which uh, bugs had made their way through to production that I believe could have been caught during code review, um, putting putting like concrete like here are some bugs that we we shipped that I'm pretty sure we could have caught if we had at least one other person read this code before it went out. Um, that was was a, a pretty compelling argument. Um, there was also uh, it was also just a little bit about um, selling the benefits around uh, the extra layer of communication that you get between developers, right? Where we're talking about we we get this opportunity uh, in in situ to be able to say, okay, this is the change that we're currently making architecturally from this pattern to this pattern, and it looks like you copy pasted the old pattern. This is the pattern that we're trying to move to, and this is why, right? Um, this is a, like an opportunity for communication that uh, is is being missed by a team that is not doing code review. Um, same with like you know communicating best practices or communicating you know sty- stylistic uh, choices. It's just an opportunity to learn that your your team's missing out on. Uh, so, um, I'm curious as to which of those arguments was the most useful. I think. Uh, in my experience, and I feel like most people I've talked to kind of disagree with me, but I think finding bugs is the weakest argument for code reviews. That's interesting. Um, That's really interesting, yeah. I think that everything else you said, I find true. Like, it's an opportunity for learning. It's an opportunity to talk about design decisions. But I think code reviews, sometimes they catch bug bugs and that's kind of a side effect, but it's not like the primary reason to do it. I've had countless bugs that get skipped in code reviews. I've had bugs introduced based on code reviews. <laughs> yes, um, yes, exactly. The code so review broke my I code. Think, I think the argument um, that code reviews help catch bugs is while true, not necessarily why code reviews are useful. It's also hard to say like I want you guys to start doing code reviews so I can pack, so I can find your bugs, <laughs> you know. Right. That's right. Mean, or, or even to say this was a bug that you introduced, and now I'm going to beat you over the head with it. Yeah. Nick, um, I, I was, to, to, to that end, Nick, I was wondering what what people might think. You know, uh, the the next step beyond learning is sort of like cross training to say, look, look, this person is no longer on an island with their code. 
And if they're on vacation, we're no longer screwed if uh, if there's a bug that needs to be solved. So interesting. It, interesting. You know, I, I I found that a lot of cultures that I've been from from you know big companies to small companies. You know, in small companies, you're like we don't have time to do code reviews. But I think on the other side of it is that small companies can feel so fragile that the the argument that this makes us more resilient um, and in terms of like not being dependent on any one individual may be helpful. Yeah, and, and this is definitely a smaller team, and we're you know, the biggest thing I think would be the 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 bloat or the resistance would be in like developer momentum, yes, or whatever. Right? Yeah, velocity. I, I, velocity. I, that's that's what I mean. Even though that term drives me nuts, I say velocity is is, is for projectiles. I, I I hate referring to developer velocity, but it is something that people love to talk about. Code review is going to make us slower. That's why we can't do it. And yeah, so with, I, I, what are the? I've got my idea on the kind of counter arguments to that, but um, I, I mean, I, I love to hear them. Well, so sadly, this is I, this is just going to sound uh, like a total acquiescence, but I think you need to kind of what the what you are hearing organizationally is what we care about is the speed at which software is developed, and so then I think that you, the argument needs to be couched as this makes us develop software faster in the long run, and. It, it that can take you into we will have less defects in our software, um, but that I agree totally agree with what Kendall said. Kendall, I'm very curious, and you know, I definitely want to hear your answer to Kendall's question. Like, what argument carried the day? I think that that's a very tough argument to make. I think the other argument that this is one that I feel I hear Adam and Kendall both making is, hey, this actually communicates our architecture. This allows, like, right now, you may have you know, one person in charge of a single subsystem, no one knows enough about that subsystem to actually go in and meaningfully help them and work with them. And that may be a, a attack to take if, if that works. Yeah, yeah I mean, I would say, I would say just um, on that like developer velocity standpoint, uh, the counterpoint is like velocity is, is a sum of two values, right? Is both magnitude and direction. And I feel like there may be a reduction in the magnitude, but uh, an improvement in the direction in the, you know, instead of uh, you'll be more likely to be pointing in the correct direction, even if the magnitude of your velocity is smaller. Um, uh, well, and I, yeah, and this, this all might change. This is like a, this is like a race to get V1 or like even below V0 release. Yeah. Like this is a completely new um, push within the organization. This is like a whole new arm of the of the organization or you know new branding new release new software everything from the ground up so an interesting thing to try um is uh paracoding i'm not a huge fan of paracoding but in one of my previous teams you could use a paracoding session as a replacement for a code review interesting yeah, and it, it, it just like finding so that's interesting. Kind of in terms of like, can you find? Because Nick, maybe this would help. But like, what are some midpoints you can find along the way that would get you closer to code review without having to? to and so, you know, I actually just because I, I I can't contain my curiosity any longer. How did you actually make it happen? Did you was it? Did you get buy in from technical leadership? Was it done by fiat? Was it done by the grassroots? How did you do it? Uh, it was. Grassroots. Uh, I submitted this uh, proposal um, 
while I was uh, kind of feature lead on on a smaller team within within uh, Jira at the time. Uh, so I had the opportunity to to introduce um, pull requests into the workflow for my sub team. Um, so that was you know the obvious first step, and then um, from there, uh, other teams started to adopt it when they saw some some degree of benefit from from doing that. And I, I suspect that some portion of that was around the communication. Some portion of that was around like uh, the team getting larger and just recognizing the need for um, this opportunity to be able to communicate about changes, um, uh, particularly when you have uh, newer people join the team who don't have the same level of familiarity with the code base. Um, it you know, you have to have that some amount of communication about the changes if you're if you're a new person to the team. I don't think that Nick has the same level of problem because of you're coming from a smaller team, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and I also wonder if there was already like a fundamental value of code review. Like code review was already deemed something at some level was important or at least relevant. Which that's yeah, it's kind of coming from scratch. From scratch, from that, that doesn't really necessarily exist would be the biggest difference, I think. Yeah, interesting. I know a bunch of folks got their hands up, so I want to hear what other folks have to kind of jump in here. Austin, did you... Uh... Yeah, one, one thing I um, ran into when I was trying to introduce code reviews is uh, some management was worried about how quickly you could respond to, like, uh, crises, like the tool being down or the site being down. So I, I found it eased the management's mind a lot to, like, say, okay, here's a backup procedure, the break glass, of, you know, procedure to turn off permissions so people can land code in emergency to fix the site. And Austin, did you, so were you in kind of Nick's predicament of needing to get a new org to adopt code review before it was too late? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a small org and getting people to see the value of having CI or even unit tests was kind of a struggle. So um, yeah, it was step by step. Step so. by step, and what yeah. Was the- what was the what was the kind of was there like an immediate like was there a moment where everybody saw like oh this was a good decision this was like obviously worth it I mean it was it was sort of like as the team got bigger and people got more annoyed by like uh, the trunk being broken you know um, it was it was sort of like that sort of developer velocity slowdown and so I included uh, code reviews as part of. Adding CI. Yeah, interesting. So you used it as a, which is, you should. It's a good argument. Um, uh, Josh, I saw you also had your hand up. Yeah. Um, one skill that I found very useful when I was sort of working as a web developer, um, I found it useful to explicitly talk about it as an avenue for bettering communication um, because communication is a skill and it's a really hard one and being a really good writer this is going a little bit to last week but writing well is genuinely hard work and so when you have an opportunity to practice that by like talking to someone else and like writing comments i found it very valuable to talk about you know this is one way that code review is valuable the other thing is accountability right like just knowing that okay two people have like looked at this they've signed it off like we are, you know, we're taking some measure of responsibility for this code. Um, that was also valuable when we were talking about it there. Yeah, interesting. Kendall, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, I think um, all of these are really good points. I think what's important, though, is to identify what's actually important to your team, right? Because I think code review is good, but if it wasn't solving a problem for me, I wouldn't be doing it. So if you can't honestly come up with a reason uh, that code reviews would be good for your team, maybe the things that code reviews are useful for just isn't valuable um, for the current project you're working on. Well, and on that, I mean, I feel in any organization, there is code that we actually don't code review, at least for me personally. I've got code that is, you know, stuff that's, that is stuff that I'm using. Maybe it's tooling, maybe it's auxiliary, it's not in production, it's not going to ship with a product. It's a tool that I use to, you know, you know, hit our Airtable instance to, you know, query something. And so we're, there's always going to be that that boundary where you have code that is transitioning from code that's not code reviewed to code that is code reviewed. So I, I feel that even in, if you're in an organization that has a kind of broadly accepted code review, you're always going to have these kind of these in, these tweeners. Um, so yeah, to, just to your point, Kendall, in terms of like it's it's got to be a fit for for each individual job. Code review needs to be a good fit. Well, I, these are all amazing points and suggestions. I'm, I'm actually going to, because I'm a lazy man, I'm going to just drop the link once it comes on YouTube into the Slack and see what uh, kind of conversation ensues afterwards. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, and I'll tell you when I got, uh, and Robert, I know we'll get to you in a second here. The, I, the, this happened to me, so just to give you some history, um, we were uh, at Joint. Um, we had a bunch of different folks doing a bunch of different work and I kind of left it to each individual repository to figure out how they wanted to go do code review. And we had a uh, very rigorous Garrett based way of doing code review in the operating system. And then other you know, the people were, kind of, it was kind of a bit of a shrink to fit code review. But what we found is that there were actually some folks that just weren't doing code review. And I do think, and you know, I think this goes to like when it is, the quality argument, even though I agree with you, Kendall, that is, is not always the most, uh, it, it can be an argument that's hard to make. It is really tough when you are looking at someone's code that's in production and you're thinking to yourself, I think I'm the first person that's ever looked at this. Like you, the person who wrote this didn't look at this. And to me, that absence of self-review can be pretty galling. Jason, going back to your story of like, you know, you're suffering in production with someone who really just didn't feel like they, it feels slipshod and code review is a way. Uh, and so we were hitting this. We, I knew we were going to hire a lot of folks and Ryan, this might even been right before you joined. Cause I knew we were going to Samsung and acquire the company. We were going to be like, they've doubling the team. And I'm like, we need to get code review in place before Jordan starts. Jordan was going to join the team. She was coming out of school. And I basically like, we can't let Jordan see us without actually like organization wide code review. So that was the, for better or for ill. That's what was. Well, wait, so there was no, there was no code review. Before I <laughs> well, that answers the question of whether we did that before or after you arrived. Yeah, so before you showed up, we were. It was more like code review was happening, but it was sporadic. And so, as you can imagine, the folks that you know, I, you know, you can kind of fill in the gaps of the people so, that wait, were how, always how did, doing code review. 
how did Robert allow this to happen? I just can't see Robert living in a world where no, and it, just, right, and, and, we're and, living and, recklessly and, and just committing to to master. Of course, whatever. which we of course Robert never did. Robert Mustaki, our our colleague at both Joint and now at Oxide, and no, we always did code review for all of the parts of the code that that Robert was touching. But there were other parts that we were not doing code review further afield. And we, what we were doing was bringing everybody under kind of one tent and really mandating code review, which meant, and I, Nick, I, one of the traps that I fell into is that if you're going to mandate code review, you're kind of going to mandate a tool. And, and then we ended up in this kind of protracted tool argument that was not as productive as I would have liked. Um, so interesting. Um, I, I think you got to be, I mean, definitely the lesson that it taught me is like, man, you got to be real easy on the man. I'm not an auto, everyone who, you know, works at Oxide knows I'm not, a, I'm not an autocratic person by nature. Um, quiet, Adam, don't unmute yourself. Thank you. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, but no, I'm not an autocratic person. I don't really believe in, in ruling by fiat. Um, and I, I, I kind of saw the peril of it and I, I, by not doing it with a more of a grassroots way, I, I, we just we we got there quickly, but but not without collateral damage, is what I would say. And Robert, I know you've had your, your hand up forever, so I want to get you allow you to jump in here. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm not recommending this as something you should do, just like as a disclosure uh, <laughs> um, to Nick. Um, something that I found very useful at a past company was just, as opposed to trying to prove that I'm right, uh, just let the other person be wrong. Um, so we had a, it, it was a company culture that probably prioritized sales and the biz DevOps side of things far more than the engineering side. And so we were in a position where the culture, you know, wasn't very strong. And so me and two other engineers, sort of put an ad hoc process together of this is how code should be deployed, this is how it should be developed. Um, but there's nothing, you know, like official. And so we tried to make that official. We tried to formalize this process so that we could allocate proper time for these things um, when we made deliverables. So um, as opposed to just saying like something was take a week and justifying it with things that maybe some PM didn't really get, like why we spent the same time on code review, because that's something they have to explain. Um, we would do that ad hoc ourselves without actually formalizing this process. And when we actually went uh, to, I think it was a, probably the VP of engineering, um, who was like, again, more business inclined than engineering inclined, um, saw that as a time waste. Wait. Um, and so oh, no. the three, and so, and so and exactly. Where, where's the so face palm emoji? Is, um, let me find it. Uh, stop. Right. But I'll, um, but so, so as opposed to, we, we thought about ways to argue our point. We thought about ways to make it more appealing, um, and being engineers, we're not very good at, you know, like, uh, <laughs> selling things to people. Um, so we all came to the calculated risk decision of, okay, we can like try and convince this person over time, or we, can, we can just stop doing code review and see what happens in the development. <laughs> so we had, so we had segregated environments. So this is, so. For, uh, for context, like, you know, usually you have a dev, a station, a production environment. Had this been, like, one environment, we, I would never have thought about this. Um, that would have been suicide. Um, but we had a safe environment where we could be willfully ignorant in a regard and sort of, quote-unquote, get away with it. We knew it would come back on us because everyone, every other engineer, data scientist at the company sort of knew that we were the, you know, de facto code reviewers. And so if something went wrong in dev, 
they were pointing the finger at us. So we're like, okay, we're going to do this. We're gonna, we are going to stop reviewing code. We're going we're gonna to say we're reviewing it, but we're going to keep on pushing to dev, and we're just going to see what happens. And within two weeks, probably 60% of the services in Kubernetes just did not work. Or they had these like random. Uh, <laughs> oh, they they, they oh, had these like random. Yeah, it would be like, things like the flow. Is, is that Machiavelli in your picture right there? Like this is this is amazing. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, Jakob Fuger, uh, Jacob Fuger. <laughs> um, so if you want to guys want to Google that, just uh, I'll go into that that detail. Um, but yeah, I guess it, it is sort of Machiavellian. Um, but it was it was a thing where in the context of you know, I, I, I could, we could sort of afford to do it. We had all been like promoted or received raises in the past two months. We made this decision, so we had some cachet to say like, okay, like we won't be fired immediately if we do this. We'll be on thin ice, but like this is something worth doing. Um, and yeah, like, it predictably came back to us. Um, we were asked like, why, you know, how this happened, and we said, well, you wouldn't. And <laughs> very, um, I didn't have the stones to say this at the time. Uh, another engineer friend of mine said, well, you wouldn't let us do it, so. We just showed you what would happen. And there's there's a very tense like staring that happened in this like very small office where we're just three sat in front of this VP and he's staring us down like the gall of you to like try and prove your point. Um very scary. I was shaking after that meeting. Um but like that ended up paying off. Like we we, sh- we showed them what happened in real time. Like we didn't we didn't, you know, try and persuade them, we didn't try and yank their arm, we just said Okay, but they see no value in this, so we're going to show them like just how invaluable it is, and that and that ended up solving the problem. Um, so, the, yeah, overall theme. I'm not saying you break dev. I'm just saying maybe find a way to let them be wrong so they can see you're, that you're not, point. you're not advocating terrorism. You're just saying right. no, 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 no. I'm not. No, I, no. In case the NSA is listening, I'm not advocating um, cyber terrorism. <laughs> um, I I'm I'm not Edward Snowden. Please don't arrest me. Um, but yeah, <laughs> what, what I'm taking from this is find a coworker and then just do code review really well at a high <laughs> level with them and then make it kind of the, uh, the nice version of your story. Like, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean this came, it came from a place of like, we did this ourselves no, and we cared yeah. about the code. So like you can, if you want to do it ad hoc yourself, nice is the wrong yeah. way. Nice is the wrong way. <laughs> Less a break. Well, it, 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 and I think that also, I mean, step by step, get the little wins. I think is that you know, kind of you had said that earlier, like step by step. And you know, you know, I thought one very important point in your story is that you didn't have the entire organization go at once. You got sub teams that began to adopt code review and get the wins and let people see the value and and let it carry. Oh yeah, um, I 100%. think. I mean, there's no there's. There's every incremental line of re- uh, code reviewed is still better than zero lines of code reviewed. So you don't have to go from you know no code review to code review is mandatory overnight uh, by fiat. There's definitely like steps along the way that you can take to be able to go on that journey. There are a lot of steps along the way. Well, Kendall, this has been great. Thank you very much for. I, I think the blog entry was terrific, um, and I just think you're. I mean, you had so much wisdom in here, I felt, about how, I mean, you got such a, uh, I mean, whoever's, I, I think you were right to be on that panel talking about code review. You're, this is something that is not just near and dear to your heart, but I think it's something that um, you've got a great deal of wisdom for that certainly I benefited from. I think everybody really benefited from it. So um, thank you so much for both the blog entry and the time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you.
Yeah, thanks, Kendall. This is great. Really great stuff. Uh, Nick is going to be sending this recording out to his entire org, so we'll see how. <laughs> thanks, <guys>. uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So look, when Nick is looking for another gig, you know, like just like just extend them an offer because he, he believes in coding. <laughs> uh, no, it, um, really great conversation as always. Um, thank you, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.